Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 126 for January 11th, 2008. Listener feedback number 32. This show and the entire Twit Broadcast Network is brought to you by donations from listeners like you. Thanks. It's time for security now. I am back. We are late. And actually, it's my fault. I apologize. I got back from Egypt with a raging cold, which I didn't catch in Egypt. I caught on the plane back, of course. Yeah, you're, sound, you're sounding a little, I mean, like, you know, okay, but like a little more throaty, I guess. Bear, a little very white uh, going on there. <laughs> That's probably all the drugs I'm on right now. I'm feeling better, but we, but we couldn't do it on a normal time. Then you had a... Uh, important business occasion yesterday. Yep, yesterday so, was burned up for me. So. so, well, that's fine. We're a day late, but not a dollar short. We've got lots to talk about. Hello, Steve Gibson. Leo, it's great to be back with you. And officially now, Happy New Year. This is the yeah. first time we've spoken since uh, 08 began. Yes, and it's and your, it's been a very good year so far. <laughs> your, your your trip to Egypt was a good one. Fascinating. Fascinating. Oh. I'm gonna. I posted all the pictures. Uh, I posted. Uh, you know, I took over two thousand, but I had the good sense to narrow them down a lot. So if you go to my blog, um, they're all up there on the in the photo section. About 125, uh, maybe not even that, maybe 80, something like that. Wow. And uh, and we had just. It's fascinating. I, you know, it's a very challenging country, and uh, you know the, the the ancient ruins are interesting. But we also. You know, we're part of this, is the world's largest Islamic city, 16 million people. Population is growing 100,000 a month. They've got a huge, huge population crisis. Um, and so it's, you know, it's very, it was very interesting. I think we learned a lot about the Islamic world as well. I'm going to write a uh, longer essay, I think, for the blog. Is, is population growing through immigration or no, birth? No, it's, a, it's an authoritarian state. There is neither immigration nor emigration. Huh. Uh, it's birth and it's mostly birth in the rural areas. But what happens is, uh, the, the, they move into the city. So Cairo is just a sprawling teeming metropolis, uh, which, you know, one block from the hotel, we've, they're dirt roads. Um, it is a very interesting place. I have a lot to say and, about it, but I'll, I'll and, probably... And, and the kids also enjoyed their... Yeah, I mean, they learned a lot. And uh, they, they saw... I mean, we, we saw every, uh, you know, important monument, and they're incredible. These, these ancient Egyptians, 4,000 years ago, they were doing art that is modern and beautiful. We saw the world's oldest sculpture, four, four or 5,000-year-old wooden sculpture. That's perfect. It's beautiful. Wow. Uh, and and uh, so it's, it's really stunning what they accomplished all those years ago. And I think that for the Egyptian people, that is a little bit frustrating because one of the questions they seem to be asking themselves is what happened? You know, we were, uh, we were this dominant culture for so long and, and now we're essentially a third world nation. So it's, it's tough times for them, but, uh, uh, it was some very interesting people uh, on the trip as well. We met a lot of great people. So I had, I had a blast. Very cool. Yeah. But I missed you guys. I really did. And I, and I'm glad to be back at work 
cold or not. This huh. is a Q&A segment. We've got lots yes. of listener questions. Yes, um, we've got, well, and it, it's a bizarre coincidence that, um, that we had promised to, to get more focused on sort of current News. events yeah. in security yeah. because there's just a, a whopper, a whopper uh, and in Windows. You know, which, it's funny. I haven't seen word one about this. All the coverage on CES, which, yes. by the way, there was nothing worth covering. And not one word about this security flaw. Um, this is I, I've seen people saying that this is the worst internet security Ugh. flaw in history. Uh, now, is it Vista? All about is it. it Vista or is it uh, uh, even XP? XP and XP Vista and Vista. It's a remote oh, code execution flaw. Oh, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But I had some errata that I wanted to share. First of all, I wanted to thank our listeners for. Um, one way or another, finding the vote buttons on my Kindle review. <laughs> I did. E- yes, even though even though the link that I had posted took people to a buttonless, you know, voting button-free yeah. <laughs> instance. Yeah. Um, enough people did that my review is now the featured oh, review, good. Oh, good. the number one review. Um, As like it should by- be. By a large margin, like by two to one, I think yeah. there are when I last looked, there were sixty seven hundred and fifty five votes wow. and ninety eight point four percent of them said that they found the review helpful. That's great. Um, I know that some of our listeners are among them because I've looked through the the comments on my review and some people have talked about you or me or the podcast or hey you know there were no buttons on the link you sent but we found i found the buttons Good. blah 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 Good. so um but i think now that it's in the first place position um you know it's got a life of its own so i absolutely wanted to thank our listeners for making another one of my wishes come true <laughs> happy new year uh, and and that uh you know and and actually there are it's very clear too that a lot of people are reading it and who are not security now listeners, but are really do honestly find it very helpful to them. So well, I brought my uh, Kindle along, and I that was how I read, and I, it was great, even though I didn't have wireless in Egypt, obviously. And I showed it to a number of people who were thinking about the Kindle, and to a man, they said, "Oh, okay, that's it. I'm going to get one." Yeah, they, yeah. They, you know, it's not perfect, as you say. It's got warts, but it's uh, it's pretty darn usable. Yeah, well, it's funny, too, because on one of the other little errata notes I had, I wanted to mention that Kindle hacking is underway. Oh, boy. Um, there are there's people have not only physically taken it apart, but they've they've gone into the software and there's, for example, pages of all kinds of of hidden features. Apparently, oh. Google Maps is built in somewhere. Oh. And there's there's things where you can change justification options, which is one of the things I really wanted, because yeah. I like ragged right more than flush yes, left. Yes, I'd love to turn that off, flush left. Yeah, I just, I, I you know, I, I'm, I don't know, it's just the programmer in me. I see, like, a long word on a, on a line which prevents wrapping where it would be nice if it could. And this is like, oh, that just bugs me. So, but there's all kinds of undocumented things. So that's all beginning to surface. Um, so Kindle hacking is is happening. Good. Also, I wanted to mention Jungle Disk, which we talked about mm-hmm. um, several weeks ago. Uh, I asked the author 
whether he'd had any effect from our mentioning it because I was curious about that. And he says, oh, yeah. He said, I mean, even over the holidays, things were much busier. And yeah. a lot of Security Now listeners um, had apparently posted in a blog that they learned about it from our podcast and, you know, were excited to check it out and try it out. So Excellent. and the reason I actually wrote to him was I was curious if it was really effective in a situation where, for example, you want to keep a laptop backed up as you're coming and going, as connectivity is changing, you're visiting Wi-Fi hotspots, you're, you know, you're just basically not even thinking about keeping your laptop backed up. And of course, I, I wouldn't ever back up on an entire laptop, but for example, the, the My Documents right, folder, right. where most of your you know documents, um, and, and for example, your desktop. And he said, absolutely, it's, it's designed with that in mind. So I have been using it in that fashion experimentally, and I've set up a couple friends who are not very tech savvy with their own um, Amazon accounts, and and am using it as sort of just a background constant, just you know, out of your way. Don't even think about mm -hmm. it. It's just gonna it's gonna keep your laptop backed up in case you know it should ever you know the the hard drive sh should get damaged or the laptop be stolen. Yeah, yeah. So well, um, anyway, jungle disk. I, I'm just I, and it's been working that well that way really well for me now. For, for a couple of weeks, so I'm really pleased. I think online backup is really the way to go. I think that's the right thing to do, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. For, for, for naive users. And I wanted to share, as I, as I always do, a, a fun um, SpinWrite story. This one is a little longer, but it was really well written. So um, it was from a guy named David Bins, who, who sent an uh, email to um, GRC with the subject SpinWrite success story. And he says... I'm an IT consultant who has just bought a copy of SpinWrite. Wow. I've been, I, he says, I've been listening to Security Now podcasts since around episode 40 and have meant to buy a copy of SpinWrite as I got a lot from the podcast and felt guilty that they were free. He says, Never I was, feel guilty they're free. That's okay. No. No, he says, I was all prepared. Well, see, but we got him anyway. Yeah. He says, I, <laughs> I was all prepared to buy a copy. When I got to discussing security now with a work colleague who also listens every week, mm -hmm. he had purchased a copy and ran it on his machines regularly. He hadn't had any problems, and Spinrite hadn't ever found any problems with his drive. Mm -hmm. He suspected either his hardware was perfect or Spinrite wasn't all it was cracked up to be. So I held off buying a copy for myself. Now, of course, we know that what's going on is the act of running SpinWrite is maintaining his drives, which is not to say that his drives wouldn't have, you know, be fine without SpinWrite. But by running SpinWrite on a drive that is even perfect, it has the option or the opportunity of showing the drive that it's got problems it wasn't aware of. Because a drive only knows it has a problem when it tries to read a sector. It doesn't know it has a problem until it tries to read a sector. So that's how SpinWrite functions good from a, from a maintenance standpoint. And because this sector relocation is literally, it's hidden, there isn't any way for me to say, oh, look, we relocated X number of sectors. I mean, that, that information isn't published by the drive. So you kind of have to take it on faith. On the other hand, this guy's using SpinWrite and his drives are not failing. So 
there you go. Anyway, uh, <laughs> wouldn't you rather have it be that way? Yeah. David yeah. continues saying, I'm the sort of person, and this is where it gets interesting, who backs things up from one computer to another and also to a USB attached hard drive at regular intervals, but even a couple of, but he, but even a couple of days of lost work can mean a lot to me. So I was particularly annoyed when my USB hard drive failed. Oh, boy. It's a Hitachi drive, and all it does is play a tune at me when I plug it in. I've attached it to a power supply, but, that, but it doesn't spin up. I wasn't too concerned, as most of the data I needed was on my laptop. It was the first hard disk that I have had fail on me in probably the last 18 years, wow. he says, parens, outside of work. So I felt I was due to experience some sort of data loss. My USB drive failed on, on 12-31-2007. Okay, so New Year's Eve. And last night at around 11 p.m. January 7th, my laptop drive failed. And my laptop would not boot, giving an unreadable drive error just after the BIOS screen. Oh, I hate that. Uh-huh. He says, I recognized this as a failed drive and assumed I had lost a whole lot of data, uh. including the accounts and invoices for, for my company. I did have a copy of the data on the failed USB drive and also a copy from around three months ago on another laptop. But I had lost a lot of information and last night had a sleepless night thinking about how I would reconstruct what I had lost. I know I should have tried Spinrite immediately, mm -hmm. but it just didn't occur to me at first. I purchased a copy this evening. Oh, so he says, I purchased a copy this evening at about 945. After downloading the software, I created a boot CD and ran it on my laptop. Spinrite was running through the recovery process by about 10 p.m., so 15 minutes later. He says, I was impressed at how quick it was for me to purchase the software and have it running. I can't tell you how happy I am after seeing Spinrite recover data from bad sectors. I'm writing this email on the laptop I was about to throw away, which is now completely up and running. It is 11.46 p.m., around two hours after buying your software and everything is back to normal and running perfectly. If you ever need anything, <laughs> advice about database administration or service management, which are my areas of expertise, give me a shout oh, as nice. you've, you've helped me enormously and I feel I need to return the favor. That's great. Many thanks. That's well, nice. of course, he already has helped us by purchasing a copy of Spinrite, which is all I would ever ask. And I thank you, David, for the tremendous... Um, testimonial. I really appreciate it. GRC.com. That's where you get your copy of a spin right. A must have. Are you ready for some questions? Do we have any more? Uh, Wait a minute. We want to talk oh, about this Microsoft we didn't, problem. We haven't yeah. gotten started yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Now, okay. Um, the, the takeaway message is absolutely everyone needs to run Windows Update. Last Tuesday, was the second Tuesday of the year. Since the first Tuesday, of course, was January 1st, um, it was January 8th, was the so-called Patch Tuesday when Microsoft releases their security updates. This week, we had a doozy. Um, it turns out that private parties 
informed Microsoft Mm -hmm. of a very low level buffer overflow, which permits remote code execution in the Windows TCP IP stack itself. So, and this is... Oh, is this the new stack that they wrote, or is this the old stack? Well, this is XP's stack, okay. and and it's believed that there's a problem in Windows 2000 as well. Oh, okay. So this has been around for a long time. Yeah. What makes this specifically bad is this is down, it's in what's called the IGMP, the Internet Group Management Protocol. That's a multicast protocol. and But the point is, this is not like a service running with an open port where the service has the problem. This is the core of the stack itself. So if you've got it running, which everybody does, you're vulnerable. If Windows is running, exactly. And, Leo, none of the built-in firewalls block this. Really? Yes, because... This is, I mean, this is not something that, like, at the application level where firewalls are blocking ports. This is more like, you know, like, well, it's it's very related to the ICMP, the Internet uh, Control Management Protocol. So how would this exploit be triggered? Okay. One packet hits an unprotected machine, Mm -hmm. and it's taken over. Oh, well, that's fast. So... Okay, what this means is, as, as far as we know... It's a packet on what it, port? It, it would be... Well, um, it, 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 it's, it's not port-based, and that's the problem. So it could be any more port. Like, it's more, well, there are no ports for IGMP. It, it's a multicast protocol. So, see, ports are related to applications. Right, you know, like right. port 80 is web services, port you know, 22 is FTP, and, and, and so forth. So, so this is more like ICMP... You know, people are familiar, for example, with pinging and trace routing, where that's the, for example, the ICMP protocol is just, it's built into the stack as part of its plumbing. So that, and by, by definition of the RFCs, any stack, which uh, any, any IP stack will have ICMP support so that you're able to, to sort of like, manage the connectivity of the stack on the internet at a low level. But how does the computer know that that traffic is aimed at it? Well, oh, because there is an IP address. I see. So so it's an IP address, but not an IP and port. Okay. So, okay, so first of all, the good news is NAT routers do block this. So here's another another reason why it would have always been good to be behind a NAT router. So a software which of course, router will not stop this, but a NAT router, a hardware router would. Well, it's it's certainly possible that a software firewall could stop it, if it knew but, Mi- but Microsoft's built-in firewalls do yeah. not. Hmm. So, and, 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 you know, this is still very new. Well, essentially what it means is there is virtual certainty that we're going to see a worm. Because well, this is a perfect opportunity for a a worm to propagate across the internet, finding unpatched XP and Vista machines. That now, now wait a minute. Now, Vista has a whole new stack. Uh, Remember, if, we talked well, about Vista's virgin stack. Yes, except that it, you know, no doubt someone took a blob of source code. The IGMP implementation is the same. 
Exactly. Oh, they boy. took a blob of so source affects, code and said, well, this affects you know, XP, it affects Vista, it affects Windows 2000. Yes. Uh, yes. Now, did Microsoft patched it on Tuesday? And that's my point. Yes. Yeah, so, so first of all, you know, the, the takeaway is make sure you run Windows Update on, I mean, critically on any computer that would be on the Internet, not behind a NAT router. Now, you know, when you're in a white, when you're in a, uh, um, like a, a um, uh, T-Mobile hot, uh, oh, yeah, like hot a T-Mobile hotspot yeah. at Starbucks or a, a FedEx Kinko's, you know, you're behind that location's NAT router looking at, you know, and, 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 and you're in a, in, in a 10 dot space, most likely. So you're when safe you're, there. Yes. And, and again, and most people are going to have a NAT router at home. Because, you know, and we've been promoting the inherent firewall virtue of, of a NAT router. So a NAT router, even if it were vulnerable, and it's not because it probably doesn't support IGMP protocol, um, which, which is a, multi-ca- a, multi, a multi-cast protocol, um, you know, it's going to drop that packet dead right there. There's no way it can go through to a specific machine because the router would have no right. n- no way to know where it should send the packet because it really shouldn't send it anywhere. But the danger is any Windows 2000 with Service Pack 4, the latest Service Pack, um, XP or Vista machine, which is is placed on the Internet, unpatched, and not behind a NAT router. That is with an actual public IP. What is... What is virtually foreseeable is that the patch will be reverse engineered. We've already seen Microsoft's patches reverse engineered where where the bad guys look at what changed and then figure out what the vulnerability was from the change that was made. So it'll it's virtual certain virtually certain that this patch will be reverse engineered. Bad guys are going to figure out where the buffer overflow is in IGMP. And maybe they wouldn't even have to reverse engineer it. Knowing that there is one there, they could just find it the same way the good guys, the good hackers did, who informed Microsoft about this some time ago. So a, what will happen then is a worm will, will be planted. When you say some time ago, that's, we're talking June of 2006. I know. I'm looking back at Microsoft's report. This fixes. This is something really a long time ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So now Uh, Microsoft says that it is only a denial of service attack on 2000, but on XP and Vista, it's a. Exactly. So, so in 2000, it will basically crash your stack. There isn't a vector that they have found that allows a remote code to be injected as part of the packet. But as you said, under XP and Vista, that the the incoming packet can carry executable code payload, which in classic buffer overrun mode will be run when this specially malformed single packet hits your computer. Wow. So so it's I mean, it's it has to be based on all the experience we have that we're going to see a worm that is that there will be enough unpatched. Windows XP and Vista machines, even with their firewalls running, oh, yeah. this thing cuts oh, yeah. through their firewall and that they're going to get infected and then they're going to turn around and start spraying 
random packets out at random IPs, as worms do, looking for other vulnerable machines. So, so you absolutely want to make sure your machine is patched, especially if you're someone who, you know, roams around with a laptop and might, might ever get a public IP address. It won't be long before the Internet will be sprayed with this IGMP protocol carrying, a, carrying you know, one or more malicious types of code. And Microsoft gives credit to the IBM security people for uh, discovering this. Yeah, the X-Force people, X-Force, I think, right? X-Force, yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's, uh, boy, that's pretty scary. Yeah, there was another one, an MLD protocol, Multicast Listener Discovery, which is part of the, the IPv6 protocol. It's a little bit less um, severe. It, it it can cause a denial of service, and there's less vulnerability associated with it. But they, you know, it was also patched. The big one, though, is this remote code execution. And again, the thing that makes it special is it is not blocked by the built-in firewalls. It is it is basically a function of the stack running in the kernel. So it so it runs n- not, for example, with with the um, uh, um, security credentials of a service which could be sandboxed or could be running with restricted credentials, it runs with the full power of the kernel when the buffer overflow occurs. I mean, it's just, this is too tasty for the bad guys not to jump on and and try to exploit. And I don't want to be self-serving here, but it's one reason why it's important to listen to this show because I'm looking through all the major tech news sources and they were so busy covering CNET, I don't see anything about this. Uh, and partly it's the recovering uh, CES, I didn't say CNET, CES, but partly I think it's, oh, another Windows security flaw. We, we're tired of that. Right. Well, it'll certainly get some news when this thing turns into a worm. Yeah. And I, it's, you know, we don't know when it's going to happen. We'll certainly let our listeners know. But it's it just, it can't help but to happen. Now, people might say, oh, well, but wait a minute, you know, won't all of these machines be patched? Well, that brings me to another interesting bit of news from the beginning of this year. Um, due to a, another flaw in Microsoft's database for, for their SQL, there is an SQL injection attack which was launched and more than 70,000 Microsoft-based websites have been infected in a way that refers people to a malicious website oh, which attempts to install keystroke loggers oh, using a number of using a number of various browser-based vulnerabilities. Oh, boy. So, okay, and get this. This was fixed in April of 2006. This was fixed then. So, almost 2 years ago this was fixed, yet there are 70,000 websites that are not patched current. So, mm. so, this, so this demonstrates conclusively that, that for whatever reason, there are, there are web servers, for example, which are not keeping up with Microsoft's patches. Because if they had patched once in the last almost two years, this would have been fixed. Yet they have they have they have SQL exposed in a way that 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 a a malicious agent was able to scan 
these websites and alter, as and we talked about uh, SQL injection attacks, basically scan all of the SQL tables, adding mm. their own JavaScript into the tables, which are then being used to present web pages. So it's a way of them injecting, they use an SQL injection attack to put their own JavaScript onto the 70,000 plus websites, which then, of course, browsers execute. And you know how I feel about JavaScript, but you know, you, I understand you have to have it most of the time in order for contemporary websites to work. So your browser then executes this malicious JavaScript, which is injected into a benign server um, that you know was innocent, except it hadn't been patched in the last two years. So that so I understand a little bit better than, you know, servers, people don't want to patch them a lot of times. A, they're not paying much attention. B, you, you, you're always nervous what the patch is going to do. But oh, I would hope, I would hope that all desktop computers are kind of running automatic updates. Yes, let's hope. Um, another uh, news item that has gotten a lot of attention lately, uh, Slashdot picked it up, uh, relates to a, uh, the so-called Stealth MBR rootkit. Um, MBR is the is the so-called master boot record, which is to say it's the first sector on on our hard disks. And the what's not understood, most people think of that as the partition table because it does contain the partition table, but that first sector is actually executable and executed code. So so the way this works is when any piece Excuse me, a little hiccup. Um, when any PC is is first booted, the contents of the first sector are copied into memory, and the computer starts executing code from the very first instruction, which actually contains a a typically c- contains a jump instruction. But basically, it means that that first sector is executed. Well, this has been used to good advantage, for example, by people doing multi-boot managers, where where they'll put additional code in other sectors on the first track of the hard drive, which is normally not used. Uh, a, 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 a contemporary hard drive track contains 63 sectors. So the first one is the so-called partition sector, which is also the master boot record. Then the other 62 sectors are typically unused and the first partition starts at the end of the first track with the beginning of the second track this is a well, very that, common technique for viruses years ago michelangelo yes. and others that you'd put a, a, a infected master boot record on a floppy and it would spread itself that way well what's now been done is there is an mbr rootkit that patches the windows kernel on the fly Wow. In order to install a rootkit into the Windows kernel whenever it boots, so you know we've talked about you know who's on first as being you know the the competition with a rootkit versus the operating system, right. and if something is able to run before the OS is able to protect itself from anything that could run subsequently, well, it's compromised. Yeah. And and this you know this does now exist. Uh, it has been found in the wild. Wow. So you how uh, did you get it? I guess you'd have to have a maybe a boot CD. Oh no! I mean, it, it would. It turns out that Windows protects everything except that first track of the hard drive. So you could you could 
in, you could get this installed by in the standard spyware. Oh, just running an application would could install yes, it. Yes, oh, exactly. Wow. Oh dear. Exactly. So um, it is. You know, it, it's worth mentioning that this exists. It's not a good thing. Um, and, but it was even foreseen some number of years ago. It's like, okay, well, this this is theoretically possible, and that theory has now been turned into reality. Yeah. Wow. So, um, and I I did note that uh, the iPhone has its first Trojan. Huh. There, there is now a, a Trojan for the iPhone, which, you know, people go browse a malicious website, and unfortunately, it uses uh, some vulnerabilities in the iPhone browser in order to install a Trojan, which causes a great deal of grief, apparently, when it's removed, because it's difficult to remove it cleanly, Ugh. and people end up messing up their iPhones uh, as a consequence. All right. So, anyway... Lots of interesting security uh, concerns here at the beginning of of uh, 08, and we'll be keeping our listeners informed week by week and blow by blow. Yeah, we're, I'm glad we're going to start doing that. And clearly, this was this was the <laughs> week to start. Boy, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Are you ready to do some questions now, Mister G? Let's do some Q and A. Twelve great questions from twelve wonderful listeners, starting with JP in Sydney, Australia. He wanted some VeriSign token clarification. You and I, you and I both have used that football and now use that VeriSign card. Right. But I love my VIP card. He said if someone were to get a hold of the VIP event-based credit card token for a short time, couldn't they push the button a few times, write those numbers down to be used later, assuming they also know your username and password? I'm guessing this wouldn't work with the football since it's time-based. Yeah, I, I, this, this was a great point that was raised, and, and it raises a few sort of interesting points. First of all, he says, well, if someone gets your credit card, your 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 VIP credit card, which is event-based, meaning that when you press the button, you get the next number, right. you press it again, you get another number, but that's entirely deterministic. That is, there's a counter which is being incremented. The counter is being encrypted and hashed through a, a well-understood and well-known algorithm to produce that un that unpredictable number well I should say unpredictable to someone who doesn't know the key which that card also contains right. the the cryptographic key which is everybody but except the site you're going to it, well it, actually it's everybody but Verisign, Verisign right, right Verisign knows and the site you're going to then checks in with Verisign right. to say is this the proper next number for this guy and of course as we've discussed there's a window of those we remember we had a listener who liked to push his button on his on his card a lot and he'd moved it he'd moved that counter so far ahead <laughs> it was outside of the tolerance window that verisign maintains uh and so he had to go through the extra resynchronization process because you know he was just having it's too not much a big function. deal you just enter the number a couple more times so it can figure yeah, out he, where you are exactly. but so, so once you use the number it can't be used again but this guy's saying well you could get a couple of numbers you could stack them up well, and, and it's only going to be good until I use it, though, right? Well, and what, but what he's saying is he's saying, okay, if I if I used if I borrowed your or sneakily got a hold of your VIP event based card right. and wrote down a few numbers, and I also knew your username and password. Okay, well, okay, wait, stop. Yeah, that what he's you, saying yeah. is, if I have, if I have all, all right. of your multi factors, then. I right. could log in. Yes, like, you could. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, if if you've got something I know and something I have, 
And well, and then here's, you, here's the question: If okay, so he gets a couple of those numbers and gets it back in my wallet. If but as soon as I use that card again and give the current number, all of those older numbers are invalidated anyway, right? That's absolutely true. Okay, um, so it's, it all, it's the, for a limited time that he's going to going to be any good. Well, it, it, it well, it's not limited time, except in the sense of limited. Uh, eventually, event. I'm going to use my card. Yeah, I would say li- a limited event. Now the point is, though, he says. That won't work with the so-called football because we know that it changes every 30 seconds. Right. And there's a window of what is that, I think plus or minus three minutes or right. something. I mean, right. it's 30 seconds and it's plus or minus five. So, yes, three, th- uh, three minutes. So if he didn't use the number on the football, then and he, and he did have your username and password, then that wouldn't work. And so, first of all, he's correct. Secondly, I wish the our VeriSign cards were time-based rather than event-based for exactly this reason, except I don't think you can do practically at this point a time-based system. They're not smart enough. Well, they're, these things are thin. I mean, yeah. the, you, you'd have to have a, a crystal time base somehow in something that is literally no thicker than a credit card and also have, you know, plastic on both sides and some goo in the middle of the sandwich. I mean, it just, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how you do that. And uh, time is a problem because that would be consuming much more power. The beauty of the, of, of the event-based card, which uses the e-ink display, as we know, e-ink requires zero power to to keep it displayed. So literally when you press the button, there's a moment of power usage from a no doubt very small and and low capacity battery, which has also somehow been sandwiched into this thing. I mean, the reason we love the card is it's in our wallets. The reason we're not so crazy about the football is if you stick that in your right. wallet, you're going to need to go to a chiropractor. And and as you point out, they'd have to get physical access to your wallet, your card. Write that down without your knowing. I think. Well, yes. I mean, I mean, his his question is: If I had all the factors of your multi-factor, you know, right. wouldn't I be able to log in? It's like, yes, you yes, would. You but would. the point is, we know you're not supposed to get all the factors <laughs> of our multi-factor. Um, and he is right, though, that the football, because it's changing constantly, there's a one of the factors that is to say that coming from the football, it gets stale. It's gonna get. It's gonna be stale in three minutes. And so it would. Ha- so if you got it, you'd have to use it quickly. You couldn't write a bunch down and then, you know, be logging in until, as you said, Leo, until you used yours, right. wh- which would immediately obsolete all previous numbers. Right. Robin in Langley, B.C., British Columbia, has been thinking about Matthew's mega hash login dilemma. I loved that. <laughs> If you don't remember that, listen back to episode 120. It's funny. Anyway, he, uh, he says, Robin says, I, I realized the problem with Matthew's login scheme, which you described in episode 120, multiple secure hashing, then just capturing the results since the connection is not encrypted. However, it occurs to me that there may be a simple way to fix the problem. I was wondering what you think of this solution. Since Matthew is creating both the client and server sides of his web app, the whole idea of this was that Matthew didn't have to use SSL. He could create his own kind of security system. Couldn't he simply have the server generate and supply a unique login ID, a serial number of some sort, to the client with the original login form generated by the server? Then, using the client script, 
<coughs> hash. I'm trying to follow this. Yeah, I, you could follow it. I won't try to follow it. Then using the client script would hash both this ID and the user's password data using Matthew's mega meta magic, mega magic encryption scheme using an encrypted blob that is sent back to the server for authentication. A man-in-the-middle replay attack would be useless then, since the encrypted blob would be unique for each login. Obviously, this won't work if Matthew's trying to specifically not use encryption decryption on the server side. Your thoughts? Well, this is a great idea, and several listeners, astute listeners, who are clearly enjoying you know, coming up to speed about crypto technology, um, responded about this. The idea being that... What Matthew described to us was he would have an algorithm on his uh, in in JavaScript code on that was being delivered from the server that would run on the on the on the browser client so that when basically when the user logged in, it would obscure the username's login name and password by hashing it down into a cryptographic blob, which would then be sent back to the server. The server would know what the proper cryptographic blob was. Um, people, and we had discussed this before, recognize, wait a minute, all you have to do if you're, if you're monitoring uh, from, and have the opportunity of being the man in the middle, all you would have to do is capture the blob and then send the blob yourself. Mm. You don't have to know what the original username and password is because – the whole point of this is that Matthew was not going to be encrypting his connection. And so, of course, that's absolutely right. So what Robin has suggested, as, as well as some other listeners, um, the server could send something to the client, which is, which is different every time. And in, in cryptography, it, it's called a nonce, an N-O-N-C-E. That is something which is just used once and, and never again. The idea being so it would send like a serial number to the client. The client would add that to the hash. So, and, and what that would do is that would mean that this blob would be different every time because this nonce coming from the server would never be duplicated. Hmm. And that would prevent a replay attack. That is, essentially, the blob could only be used for authentication once and never again. Now, that's certainly the case that you could do this, but if you were an active man in the middle, that is, if you were, if you had the ability to filter the traffic going in each direction, you could simply, you could simply log in by, um, by capturing these nonces and, and essentially using the client to solve this puzzle for you intercept its response and then use that to log yourself in so again it's it's still you know i mean that there's a real problem with not having a, a secured cryptographically strong connection because there are all kinds of games that can be played depending upon what level of access an attacker is able to get to your connection but it certainly it, it was another interesting application of 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 all the crypto that we've been talking about um, in, uh, you know, in prior weeks. It's a thought exercise. Yeah. Tyler Menenzi, Menenzi's in uh, Redmond, Washington, had an alternate password idea. While setting, uh, while setting type for a brochure, I thought of an interesting idea. 
if you were to use a non-breaking space, instead of hitting the space bar, you hit Alt plus 160, actually 0160 on the number pad for Windows, in your password. Wouldn't this make it much harder for keyloggers to get your password? The attacker would see a normal space, which is not the same as a non-breaking space bit for bit, so the application would reject it. If I'm worried about someone intercepting my keystrokes or perhaps looking at my saved Firefox passwords, if I didn't save a master password, would this be a good solution? I'm a big fan of the show. Keep the awesome shows coming. P.S. Spinrite rocks. <laughs> well, I thought this was sort of an interesting idea. Um, I use the alt key myself. I think alt um, 249 or maybe it's zero two four nine is a bullet, and mm. so even in my in my in my source code where I wanted like put in some some bulleted points, I'll just use that. It, it's a PC only sort of feature, right. which has always been around, where, where you're able to hold down the Alt key and then on the uh, on the number pad, you're able to sort of manually dial in a um, a a code which doesn't have to be within the normal 256 um, uh, ASCII characters, but allows you to access a, a much wider range of, of characters. The problem is that it, is, ten, it tends to be application-specific. That is, some applications understand that keyboard sequence and others don't. Mm. So I would say, well, your mileage may vary. Um, it, it's certainly an interesting idea. And so, for example, if Firefox did allow you to put in those the so-called high ASCII or or Unicode characters, that is characters outside of the normal character set. If so, if Firefox allowed that, then you could certainly obscure the fact that that a space in a password was not really a space. It just looked like a space while while not actually being that so i mean that, that that's that's certainly a possibility the problem is a keystroke logger is logging the actual keys you type so it knows exactly what you typed exactly it's um not, and it's so, not fooled by how it looks it doesn't well, it's not looking at it. It, it the 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 problem is there is a a complex interaction of of different layers of keyboard handling so at some level the the output from the keyboard is going to just be ASCII, or it might be 16-bit Unicode, somewhere else it's actually the individual events of keys going up and down. The scan so, codes, yeah. Yes, so exactly, scan codes from the keyboard. So if you had a keystroke logger that was intercepting at the scan code level, and it was able to interpret those scan codes into their equivalent Unicode, I mean, I guess. Well, you know, even if it's I mean, ASCII, the unbreaking, non-breaking space is a different ASCII symbol. So correct. even at ASCII level, it's going to catch it. Correct. Yeah. I, it only works if somebody's looking. I guess if they're looking at your Firefox passwords, they might not notice that. that that's exactly what I was going to say, was that if you, if you had passwords that had obvious spaces in them, and if Firefox treated these alternate characters in a compatible way, then it could work. So, you know, it's an interesting idea. And I would say, you know, the reason I say your mileage may vary is, well, try it, but don't count on it because you might find out, first of all, that a keystroke logger could be smart enough to track the individual scan code events and figure that out. Or you might have applications that are incompatible with the whole concept. 
John Campbell in Chile, Bozeman, Montana, looks up DNS without the help of his ISP. In a past episode, you talked about having your internet service provider's DNS server track your movements. I found a solution, not for the faint of heart, treewalkdns.com. This is a DNS server you set up on your local machine that bypasses your ISP and does the DNS lookups directly. It can also be used as an ad blocker and to block access to hostile sites. I use it on my laptop and at my house. The DNS software is simple to install. Setting it up to do ad and hostile site blocking is not so simple. It also has the advantage that you're not depending on your overloaded ISPs, DNS servers, and it caches DNS lookups, lookups locally. I wish they had a donate button on their site. Well, this is an interesting uh, piece of email for me because the two guys who are behind TreeWalk DNS are longtime GRC news group participators and a whole bunch of GRC news group users because there's been lots of dialogue in our news groups about this, do use and love TreeWalk DNS. So uh, a, a couple comments. First of all, um, I, I should have mentioned at the top of this, but I'll say it now, um, the show notes for this episode, episode 126, is has a whole page of URLs. So treewalkdns.com is spelled exactly as it sounds, but there's also a link to it on our show notes page. And we've got a bunch of other URLs we'll be coming to in in subsequent questions, which uh, <laughs> there's no way to pronounce them or spell them out. So I, I wanted to make sure that people listening to this know that the show notes for this episode contain all the links that we're talking about. Okay. Um, we do that in the show notes on the site too, right? On our site. One of the um, one of the things that I, that ISPs are sort of notorious for is referred to in this email, and that is the the overloaded DNS servers. Many ISPs sort of regard DNS as the you know the unwanted stepchild service that they have to offer their users. They often have servers that are small or old. Uh, sort of, you know, dusty things in the corner that never get much attention. Uh, you know, DNS is not a very glamorous service. ISPs have to offer it. But it's it can be the case that the DNS servers are old and slow and, in fact, overloaded because, you know, the ISP grows and grows and grows, increases the number of users they've got. All users' computers are generally aimed at that I, at their ISP's DNS servers to perform the recursive DNS lookup on behalf of, of their requests. So those DNS servers end up being slow. And as we know, anytime you put a URL into your browser, unless your, your local machine already has it cached from being used before or if that url exists in your host's file which is a is a substitute for the whole dns process if neither of those is the case you'll your your computer then asks your typically your isp's dns server to look up the ip so everything comes to a grinding halt until you get a response affirmatively or negatively from that dns server about what's going on. So the idea here that the John is talking about is to instead of using your ISP's DNS servers at all, run your own. That is, have a DNS server running in your computer and have it do exactly what the ISP server would have done on your behalf. And so the the, the potential advantage is 
first of all, you know, presumably your own server would never be overloaded because it's not it's not doing any serving for anyone but you. Um, the downside is that ISPs servers might already have, for example, and would probably have, for example, www.aol.com in its local cache, and Microsoft and MSN and Amazon and I mean, you know, all of the common URLs might already be there. In which case, you're getting, you're taking advantage of all the other users who have asked that that common DNS server because you're all all of the ISP's customers are sharing that DNS server. You're taking advantage of the fact that the popularity of popular sites would have caused the result, the IP, already be to be known by that local server. On the other hand, it is just as likely if you're browsing around that that's not going to be the case. And so having a server running in your own machine would allow you to get more performance. Now, John also mentioned the privacy aspect, which which is what we were t- we, we had touched on a couple of weeks ago, and that is that you know if anyone cared, if an ISP cared, they're able to determine where your computer goes because your computer is always asking for to, for it that is the ISP's DNS server to look up the IP of any domains you want. So. If from from a from a privacy standpoint, there is some compromise there in that your ISP could be tracking that. If you run your own DNS server, you're not asking your ISP, but you are asking other servers, other DNS servers on the net, and the request is coming from you. So that's so that's sort of a privacy trade-off. On one hand, your ISP would know if you were asking for a specific site and know who you were, but the site and the servers that it has to ask would only see the request coming from the ISP and not from you. So it does, by using your own DNS, it cuts out the middleman, which can be a benefit for performance, but it does mean that your own IP is the one which is now making these requests rather than your ISPs on behalf of you. Still, from a performance standpoint, what I hear is that it's a win. And I should say I'm running my own DNS servers. Um, I have uh, a DNS server that, that we run, um, uh, GRC runs at, at our facility at level three, and I even have one here at home um, on, on a Unix box, and it was these guys uh, who did TreeWalk DNS that helped me through the initial hurdles of, of getting the, the, my own local DNS server set up correctly and running, and they really do know what they're talking about with DNS. I have to say that there's a potential, as you point out, for it to be much slower because you don't have the, the lookups haven't been done on a lot of the sites you're going to go to. Right. So you're actually going out to a more distant server than your own ISP server to get that information. You've got to get it looked up somewhere. I just, you know, if you're worried about, you know, if your ISP has a lousy server, you don't have to use your ISP server. I know a lot of people use, believe it or not, Verizon's ISP servers because they're they have or I, or DNS servers, I should say. They have notoriously fast DNS servers. Um, I don't really recommend that. I use a, a, a company called OpenDNS, absolutely free. It's OpenDNS.com, and they're faster servers and they have some additional features, including um, filtering. Doesn't solve the privacy issue, but I'm not sure you've solved the privacy issue by running your own server anyway. Right, and I guess OpenDNS also supports an, an additional set of sort of off-the-beaten-path, top-level domain names. Right. 
as they I They also, if you mistype uh, .com, as, <laughs> they'll fix that. And uh, they have a very helpful, uh, instead of a you know, 404, they'll give you a search results, uh, which is how they monetize themselves. There's some advertising on the right there. Um, but I actually, if you, if you create a free account with OpenDNS.com, um, you can turn on uh, filtering, which I use at home. And unless your kids are smart enough to change, manually change the DNS server on their computers, you're set. You just set it on the router. And you're and you're good, and it works very well. They have no That's idea. Very nice. Yeah, very nice. so I mean, I guess there's some advantages of having running your own DNS server, but I, <laughs> it seems like a lot of a lot of work. Well, our our more techie users do enjoy it, and this uh, the uh, TreeWalk DNS server uh, is well packaged. It basically it is it is a Windows port or a, a Windows build of the the internet standard bind oh it's bind oh, it's okay. bind oh, okay. yeah it's basically it's bind running on well Windows. Then there's another issue you should be aware of because bind is has a notorious notorious for security flaws <laughs> so remember you're running a server now yep and uh, that means you're opening yourself up to possible uh, attack i'm not sure you, you if you all right if you want to do this go ahead <laughs> be be aware of what you're doing uh open dns would probably be better for most people uh, Athol Wilson in Auckland, New Zealand, had a thought about the Romper Room Cipher. Your Symmetric Ciphers podcast did the trick. Finally, the penny dropped with two to the 128th, having so many billions of zeros. It's now obvious that even a five gigahertz processor could drop 10 zeros off the end, and there'd still be an awful lot of seconds, hours, days, millennia left. I did expect you to cover double encryption using double RRC. That's double romper room cipher, though. I have never heard of this. Where, of course, to succeed in a brute force attack, one would have to retry each of the 256 keys 256 times to find any plain text. I also, I don't, you'll, maybe you can explain that. I yep. also discovered a great flash animation of the Ringel, is that how you say it? Rindall? Oh, Rindall. I never saw yeah. it spelled out. Yeah. You've heard you say it many times. Rindall encryption process. It would be great to share it with other listeners. We'll put, again, that link in our show notes. So yeah, um, it, it, it's funny because I, I started out talking about symmetric ciphers in the context of, of explaining why it was clear that for a symmetric cipher, like we've been talking about, double encrypting with different keys would give you you know, fabulously more strength, essentially, you know, a lot more strength. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I developed this notion because I also wanted to clearly explain how that was and why we, we, we developed the so-called romper room cipher, which we will remember was a, a trivial little cipher that was that used, I think, a four-bit key. Oh, this was your explanation it, of how they worked. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. It was a, it was a four-bit key and an eight-bit that is a one-byte cipher, one-byte block length. Right. So he was saying that, gee, you know, you you went to the trouble of developing this concept of a simple romper room cipher, but then never used that to explain. Oh, yeah. How. In that context, how double encrypting would work, yeah. and and as he said, yeah. how you would have to try. All of the keys, all of the keys twice. That is each key, and then try all the other keys against that. Right. Basically, you know, reverse engineering or doing a brute force attack on double encryption. So I thought, yeah, that you know, he made a really great point. He also found an, or actually reminded me of an animation I had once seen a long time ago. Um, I and we've got the link in the show notes. 
It's it's a shockwave flash animation. It is so good that I've grabbed a copy of it to keep local in case it ever goes away. And also it gives the credits to its authors in the flash. So I didn't think anyone would mind if I, you know, pulled a copy off of the original website. So he gave us an Austrian website, which is just, you know, long, but you're going to host it. Yes, I, I, I am hosting it, and the link, I, I think it's grc.com slash miscfiles slash reindollanimation.zip. I just zipped it because it got half the size, um, and it is really nice. It's a little on the techie side. I mean, so you'd have to sort of be comfortable with binary and so forth, but the, the guys that put this together, if you, I think if you coupled that with listening to episode 125 last week's episode on symmetric ciphers where i describe how rindall works together you know these are like the diagrams i never drew for for this description and it's beautifully animated showing things xoring and the the code zipping around in loops going through the multiple rounds and all that so anyway if our listeners for our listeners who are interested in you know seeing something happen with animation um, check out the link in in the show notes. Uh, it, it's really worth taking a look at. Cool. Rindall is for those like me who've only heard Steve mention it. R i j n d a e l. Yep, okay. it's actually sort of a, a a contraction of parts of the last names of the two designers of the cipher. Ah. So it's sort of a synthetic word. Uh, Looks Dutch. But Andrew Ayer in Perth, Australia, wants to make use of Rindall. Hi, Steve. I work for a small software development company where I and all of my colleagues are regular listeners to Security Now as well as some of Leo's other podcasts. So an interesting debate arose within our office after last week's episode, Symmetric Ciphers, number 125. We're wondering if you could settle it for us. Does this happen to you a lot? Can you settle a bet for us? (laughs) We're in the process of implementing a .NET web service application that makes use of Rindall 256-bit asymmetric encryption to encrypt data that is then passed to the web service rather than in the clear. We originally intended to hard code a Rindall key and initialization vector on both ends, client and server. But we're now thinking that might not be such a good idea as we'll need to reuse this hard-coded key and IV over and over again. I think this might be equivalent to reusing a one-time pad over and over again. A big no-no. I don't think we'd be susceptible to a brute force attack, but we might be susceptible to some kind of, I don't know, statistical attack? One approach suggested uh, to get around this possible problem is to somehow use the current date time as a way of salting the Rindall key or IV in some way. That way, the one-time use pad is never reused, and we could still hard-code the Rindall key and IV on both the client and server. Just hash it, I guess. We'd all be very interested in your opinion of our dilemma. Well, this was a really great application question for for security. Um, there's there's a there are a couple ways of using a symmetric cipher like Rindall to encrypt communication. The simplest way is, is called the electronic code book or ECB, um, which is really just a way of saying you simply take 128 bits at a time, or that is to say the block length of the cipher. That is, you know, the, 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 the number of bits that you feed into the cipher to get that same number of bits mapped to a different combination out. 
And in the case of Reindahl, no matter how long the key is, Reindahl is, as we know, a 128-bit cipher. So you would take 128 bits, like the first 128 bits of your message, encrypt it into a different 128 bits, and that's your cipher text. Then you take the next 128 bits, encrypt it, and that's the next block of ciphertext, and, and so you go along. And that's the so-called electronic code book, which is just a, a, a shorthand for saying, you know, the cipher is the so-called code book. And you see all, all you do is take blocks of plain text, run it through the code book cipher, turn it into ciphertext, and then take the next block. That makes people uncomfortable, even though Reindahl is very strong. Even though we know with 256 bits that it's infeasible to do a brute force attack, the reason it makes cryptologists uncomfortable is that every time the same 128 bits appeared in the message, it would encipher to the same resulting 128 bits given the same key. So if the key didn't change, it's very clear that that some information is sort of leaking out. So you might call it inferential leakage because because given enough analysis of the communication, it might be possible for someone to infer meaning just from the repetition of certain parts or certain types of repetition. I mean there there is some leakage of something which makes the cryptographers say ah you know can't we avoid that too mm. in order to do so they came up with this notion of of blockchaining um cipher blockchaining cbc is the is the most popular of these with cipher blockchaining you take a so-called initialization vector now notice in the standard electronic code book there was no no initialization vector. That is, you simply took the message, you and the first 128 bits, you enciphered it, and that was your your 128 bit result. Then you go to the next block. Hmm. With with this what's called cipher block chaining, you start off with a a so-called initialization vector, which is the same size, the same width in bits as the cipher. And so in the case of Reindahl, it would be 128-bit IV or initialization vector. You XOR the first block that you're encrypting with this initialization vector. And as we know, what an XOR operation does is it conditionally inverts the bits. So where the initialization vector contains one bits, the the bits being input will be inverted. And and that's nice because it's a, it's a reversible process. So remember, anything we encrypt is only useful to us if we're able to decrypt it at the other end. So, so we take this initialization vector, XOR it with the first block of our plain text, and then that's what we encrypt. We encrypt that XORed result as our first block of ciphertext. Then we take that first block of ciphertext and XOR it with the second block of plain text that we're encrypting. And we then encrypt that to create the second block 
of encrypted results. And similarly, we take that result, XOR it with the third block of our input and encrypt it to produce our third block of encrypted output. What that does is, first of all, it introduces another 128 bits of uncertainty into the process. We already had, for example, a 256-bit Rindahl key. Now we're adding another 128 bits, which is unknown to an attacker. If we weren't doing that, then the attacker's problem would only be the 256 bits. On the other hand, we know that's a big problem. So that's not, you know, making it even more impossible you know, when it was already impossible, it's like, okay, well, I guess we're even safer than we were, even though we were safe enough. But more importantly, what it means is that this initialization vector is is propagated through the entire message. Because we take the output of the first encrypted block and XOR with the input of the second encrypted block, the the Everything about the message, the, the initialization vector, and all the preceding bytes affect, that is to say, influence everything that comes afterwards. So no longer do we have the situation we did before with a so-called um, uh, codebook approach where each block of 128 bits stands by itself. Now the entire history of the message affects the next byte's result, which means that even if the plain text had repetition in it uh, uh, to any degree, all of that would be masked in the result. And the beauty of this chaining approach, where the result from one is mixed in to the input of the second, is it's reversible. You're able to decrypt this knowing both the original key and the original initialization vector and undo all of this which of course is required for decryption so now that we've got this sort of background all these guys have to do is include with their encrypted data a randomly chosen initialization vector um that's all they have to do um Essentially, what that will do is, and, and this initialization vector is also we would be called a nonce, a, a, a one-time token, which is not going to be reused again for security. And even though it would be in the clear, that is, it itself would not be encrypted, that doesn't matter because it's changing every time and you could have it added to a secret initialization vector, that is to say like XORD, to, to, so that even the true initialization vector that was being mixed in to the plain text was never known. And so the idea is, the, in, in this client and server mode, the system would have a 256-bit symmetric encryption key, which would be secret for the client and for the server, as as Andrew described it, when you wanted to send a message that was in and it was securely encrypted in either direction, you you would send a first 128 bits, which is the initialization vector, followed by 
the encrypted result. And the receiver would receive the initialization vector and use that to start the process of decryption. And there is, and, and so since you're, the initialization vector is changing every time, but it is obscuring all of the patterns in the cipher, it's entirely secure to let the initialization vector be known in the communication channel. You don't have to, for example, secretly use the, the time of day or date or somehow otherwise synchronize the encryption and decryption of the endpoints. You, you have the, the, the originator who's doing the encryption just choose a random number or an incrementing number, whatever they want, stick it on the beginning of the message, send it to the other end, and even though that would be done unencrypted, that is that that channel would be in the clear, an attacker could see the IV, that 128-bit initialization vector, and it wouldn't help them in any way to decipher the rest of the message cool. because it's it's solving the problem of of statistical patterns which would otherwise be present and then we're we're d relying on the strength of Reindahl's 256-bit key which we already know is massive strength massive strength massive massive well there you go andrew <laughs> talk about free consultation david eckhart in durham has been uh, counting his toes steve he says i've listened to all 125 security now programs it is possible to pronounce the number of digits in 2 to the 128th, which you were talking about in Security Now 125, the exact value of just 2 to the 128th, not its factorial is, and by the way, you are now going to understand why scientists use scientific notation instead of actual numbers. 340 undecillion, 282 decillion, 366 nonillion, 920 octillion, 938 septillion, 463 sextillion, 463 quintillion, 374 quadrillion, 670 trillion, 431 billion, 768 million, 211,456. And now you want that number factorial? Ah, sheesh. Just the number of digits in 2 to the 128th factorial is 1 duodecillion, 296 undecillion. See, we don't, <laughs> so do, do we go above... I guess we could. We could keep going on. Um, there apparently is a web page, and, and I think David referred to it in his message, but uh, it seemed a little bit superfluous. Um, there's a web page which explains how you can keep going forever. Oh, that's fine. Uh, I mean, there is a, it's a well-known. there'd have to be. There'd have yeah, to be. Yeah, a, a well, well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I guess you're right, there'd have to be. Yeah. But there's a well-known discipline for just continuing out as many, as far out as you wanted to go. But he spelled all this out for us. So I thought uh, our listeners would get a kick out of that. And uh, we, of course, we're doing cryptography. So we're all about big numbers. Big numbers. But, but really, scientific notation is just fine. Keith Stein in College Station, Texas, Texas is feeling disconnected. Steve, I've become increasingly dependent on Skype over the past couple of years. I know how you feel, Keith. Yeah. I work for a company of 50 employees. We use Skype as a major communications tool, mostly for the texting feature of all things. We were notified today that our IT department, by our IT department, that the security group has identified Skype as a security risk. Oh, please. And then they'll yeah. be removing it from all our systems. <sighs> I know you use Skype for your podcast with Leo. How much, if any, is it a security risk? 
I haven't heard well, anything about a security risk in Skype. No. Well, okay, so let's discuss the theoretical security risk because that's really the only thing we can we can discuss meaningfully. Now, it is uh, a, it is an, it is an open source, so there could be all sorts of holes in Skype nobody knows about. Well, precisely. So, for example, most typical Skype users are behind NAT routers, our ever-loving NAT router that, you know, we preach about here. I mean, I'd be behind a NAT router even if I only had one computer on the Internet because they they only cost $49 now, and you can even find them for less than that. And as we know, when we were talking about this nightmarish um, new security vulnerability in the Windows stack, you really want to be behind something other than your computer's own local personal firewall. So... So most people behind, I'm sorry, most people using Skype are going to be behind NAT routers, which is going to protect them. On the other hand, as we know, and we've discussed before, there's the problem of the the so-called Skype supernode, which is inherently an exposed and accessible Skype client, meaning it's someone running Skype whose machine has a publicly accessible Internet address, you know, seven zero dot three two six dot whatever. I mean, something, you know, or twenty four dot or, you know, any of those that you typically see your router's IP being your router's public IP. If someone actually has their computer on the net and they've got the, you know, Skype running in a super node mode, meaning that it's able to accept incoming packets and if there were, as you were just saying, Leo, a some sort of buffer overrun, you know, n- um, not widely known or unpatched problem. Then potentially people could could look around for those Skype clients, and as is the case with any server, because that's what a super node is. A super node is a server could use that in order to attack them. So the risk so, is because Skype bypasses firewalls. It's well. It's the, letting I, stuff in that you can't control. I would say that the risk is that because Skype would, Skype is always trying to be a super node. Right. If Offering a service, in other words. Right. Well, it, yeah, because it would like to be a traffic relay in order to help those who are behind unfriendly NAT routers mm. where, where it's unable to do the NAT penetration for you. In that case, if, if, if both users are behind unfriendly NAT routers, then there is no way for the Skype for Skype Central to negotiate the the uh, connection between two clients, both behind unfriendly NAT routers. Skype does not themselves offer a relay service where, for example, Google Talk does offer a relay service. Instead, the Skype system looks around for exposed Skype clients, that is, that are not behind any kind of NAT router, and uses them without their owner's explicit right. permission or knowledge, uses them to relay traffic to clients that are that are behind unfriendly NAT routers. So, so if Skype had a security problem and if if it were operating successfully as a supernode, then it would be accessible for attack. Also, if even if normal Skype were behind NAT routers, I mean, it is a peer-to-peer network. And I think, frankly, that's probably what 
the IT real problem. Yeah. Yes. I think that, you know, peer to peer has gotten such a bad reputation that it may just be the fact that it's a peer to peer network that has got the IT department spooked. They just don't like the idea that you are connecting to another peer. On the other hand, as we read or as, as we know from the beginning of this podcast, 70,000 web servers, actually many of them were, were belonging to .gov and .edu and uh, .mil networks. You know, they were just taken over because they hadn't been patched in almost two years. So it's not like a, a client-server relationship is necessarily any safer to use than a peer-to-peer network. So and I guess I'll take it back. I guess there are risks and uh, and you should be aware of them. And if your company says don't, you can't. I wonder if there is a to, uh, well, of course there is. Of course there's VoIP solutions that don't they're not peer to peer. They don't do NAT traversal. Well, yeah, in fact, I was just wondering whether I couldn't really tell from Keith's note whether they're using Skype's texting. It's like they're using it for an IM client. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. And it sounds like they're using it within their corporate perimeter, in which case there's lots of solutions for right. just text, te- you know, texting the guy two offices down. Well, there's encrypted chat, too, which you probably should use. Right. Rob in Pennsylvania wants to watch his cores closely. I thought I heard Leo say in an episode he had a program to monitor each individual core on his quad core machine. I do. I just built my first quad-core monster. I thought it'd be cool to see how much each core is being used. But now I'm on a Mac, so I'm not going to be able to help you. Well, and I, so, so I thought I would ask you to remind us what you use for monitoring your quad-cores, and then I will tell everybody what I use for monitoring mine on my Windows machine. Yeah, so on the Mac, um, I have a, a little thing called menu meters that is a really handy little uh, menu bar item, and it, it lets you do a lot of things, including CPU but you can also uh, watch disks, memory, network usage, and more. But I just I just keep the CPUs up, and it's very helpful. You know, uh, if your if your system's starting to get bogged down, you can look up and say, "Oh, I see why something's going on." Now, you know, Apple just announced eight core. <laughs> so, I presume this would work with eight cores too. Now, there I'm sure there are a lot of choices uh, on the on the Windows side. Well, actually, my the one I use is just the one that's built in. Oh the yeah, good old sure. Windows Task Manager. Yeah. It, if you clip, click to the processors tab, it will show you however many windows you've got threads of execution. That is, mm-hmm. e- even on a single core hyper-threaded chip, it'll show you two windows. And on my quad-core machine, I get four. So it's just it's built into Windows. It's just the task manager, uh, which is easy to bring up. And one of those tabs will allow you to see what each of your different cores is doing, showing you a little little graph you know, in real time. And for example, I recently updated my favorite MPEG compressor to take advantage of all the cores. And my goodness, does it run fast on that oh, machine? Oh, that makes a big difference. I mean, it just saturates all yeah. four of them, and it just cruises through media uh, for for compression purposes. I mean, it, it's that's an example of something that really can take advantage of quad cores. Most of the time, all four of those are sitting around looking at me, saying, "Well, okay, you know, G- give me something got, to do. <laughs> you, you got four. You got four of us here. Give me something to do. Yeah, there, you know, the Windows Vista gadget bar has a CPU monitor. I imagine it would look at all four processors. And uh, you said that uh, it comes with Windows. Of course, it comes with the Mac too. There's an activity monitor. It does exactly the same thing. Right. There are lots of little gadgets that do this. It is nice. It's kind of fun. 
I always worry that these things are using up cycles <laughs> and, and uh, maybe you shouldn't be running them in the background. But I did discover one thing. Speaking of that, Leo, um, running it on my laptop. Uh, I mean, I have all, for, traditionally I have had the task manager, a shortcut, the task manager in my uh, startup folder so that it's just always runs. I have it set up to start minimized mm-hmm. and there's an option to to minimize oh, to nice. the minimize to the tray and that way i just have a little cute little rectangle down in my tray that shows me how how much the computer's working which is just you know as a techie it's i find it useful the problem is running it on a laptop every single oh. time it updates it it pings the hard drive it, yeah and it keeps the hard drive from ever shutting down to conserve battery life and to keep the laptop running cool so I've learned, oopsie, yeah, not, that's, a, that's a habit I need to break from my laptops because I like them to be able to right. spin down if, you know, instead of have, to have some dumb task manager sitting there going ping, ping, right. ping. I wonder why drive. it hits the hard drive. It doesn't really need to hit the hard drive. Yeah, Windows, you know, what are you going to do? It could keep Speedstep from uh, kicking in, though. It might say that, oh, I'm never idle. I'm always busy looking at how busy I am. I would be surprised. I'm not, I'm not idle. I'm busy. <laughs> Ryan Couture of Enfield, Connecticut is wondering... About more iron in his diet. Stephen Leo, I've been listening to your show since episode one, and I must say you've taught me more about security than I could ever have learned on my own. Keep up the amazing work. Thank you. I had a question about a product that I saw while looking for a flash drive online. It's the Iron Key thumb drive. Ironkey.com. Claims that it uses hardware encryption to protect your files and has a crypto chip that will self-destruct the encryption keys if a physical attack occurs. It looks good. And I was hoping to have a second opinion to the technology. I was wondering if you could do a mini review of it or at least clarify if it's worth the premium. Thanks again. Keep up the good work. Well, I know what he means when he says worth the premium How because I, it? I bought two of them. Uh, it was the, the four gig one on from Amazon was one hundred and thirty eight dollars. Oh, that's outrageous. Yeah. Um, however, I put Ryan's question here and I went to Amazon and clicked the yes, send it to me button. Because I have to find out. Many, many, many listeners oh, have yeah. asked about Iron Key. We've shown them on the TV show. I mean, they're nicely made. Well, in fact, I've got, you know, I, I clicked, um, you know, you and I are are recording this podcast two days late because uh, you were under the weather when you got back from your vacation. So I had done all of the production work for the podcast and um, and, and ordered these iron keys, which well, the first of which came yesterday, oh, and I perfect. looked at it, and it's it's gorgeous looking, and it's like okay. And the reason I bought two is I'm going to open one no, up. Oh, you did? Oh, oh yeah. Good. All right. Yeah, yeah. I've got to find out you if it actually. Seriously, you know, it's good. like some weird smoke and some. And if I hear Mission Impossible music, right. you know, and <laughs> you know, so he will self destruct. And I'm a little annoyed that the box says military-grade encryption. It's like, okay, well, what encryption? Tell me. Um, so I know I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do as Ryan and a huge number of listeners asked and check out the Iron Key flash drive as thoroughly as I can, and I will report back. Good. Good. Anand K. in Detroit, Michigan, discovered something worrisome about Opera's mini-browser. Mini-me. I use it. He says, I use a BlackBerry Curve and dislike the default browser that comes with it, so I downloaded Opera Mini. I have two. I just got it right here on my, uh, on my Curve. Keep listening, Leo. Tried to run Curve. it. It won't connect to the internet. So, I had to do some debugging 
what was going on before I could get it to work. In this process, I realized that Opera Mini actually talks to a transcoder server, which I assume is like a proxy to get its data. All requests go to this transcoder server. After searching for documentation on this behavior, I found that it's documented on the Opera Help site. And we've got the URL also in the show notes. OperaMini.com. In a nutshell, the mandatory use of this transcoder server makes this impossible to provide end-to-end SSL security for client connections. Oh. Uh-huh. So all of my cookies, user IDs, passwords, and other sensitive information I had so far assumed was secure going over SSL was actually going through this proxy server and getting decrypted there. Even though it's documented, I'm not convinced a browser should do this. I'm not either. Hmm. Opera's site explains why they need to do this at the URL I referenced above, but I'm not convinced. They should have left the SSL connection alone, direct, with end-to-end security, and use this optimization for plain text connections. Secondly, there's no indication given by the software for the user to know clearly that this is what's happening behind the scenes. Is this reasonable in your book? Thoughts on if, how they could have done it differently. Wow. this, This is a perfect example of something we have touched on many times in the last two and a half years, and that is the idea of a proxy server that is terminating the SSL connections itself. That is essentially decrypting connections that you thought were encrypted in order to have access to the the non-encrypted data that is inside the SSL tunnel. Now, the reason they're doing this is that this this server that the Opera Mini browser connects to is really doing a lot of good work for the user. It is rewriting pages, web pages on the fly, rewriting JavaScript on the fly, essentially turning non or turning web pages that were never designed to be seen on a very small screen on a very lightweight and and lower powered browser you know making them work and so if you if they didn't do that that is if they did pass ssl through end to end first of all the your browser that is that you're holding in your hand running on presumably a lower power chip it would need to be able to do SSL, which is a little compute intensive, although I would argue these days, you know, that can be handled easily enough. Um, and they would then no longer be able to perform this filtering, which apparently the Opera Mini browser depends upon. On their security page where they address this, they, 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 they're not quite as upfront as I wish they were. Um, I mean, you know, uh, Anand K, who's a Security Now listener, he's obviously astute enough to sort of read between the lines. I know. I didn't. I didn't know. Yeah. I've been using this. Yeah, you have to read between the lines to get what it is they're doing. I'm mad. And, you know, and, and yes, I know. I mean, this is, this is not good for it to be less clear for people. Apparently, they're providing some sort of tunnel encryption of their own, not SSL, but, but that's, you know, so your data is protected itself going to them, but then it's completely open. I mean, it, so you're trusting the Opera Mini server, proxy server, everything you do, your passwords, your secure login. I mean, literally your username and login that you thought was over SSL. Unbelievable. 
is unencrypted. And finally, at the end of this of this FAQ page, someone you know asks the the hypothetical question. Well, what if I don't like that? And their answer is, well, then you can't use Opera Mini. Go use you know Opera, you know the regular Opera, you know non Mini browser. Sorry. Um, and so you know, I mean, I don't really have an opinion one way or the other. Although, I don't think I'm going to use it. I just deleted it. Yep. I'm kind of stunned. So that's annoying, and I really thank Anon for the... Yeah, I would not have known. I'm looking at their website right now. It doesn't say that it's doing that. No, I mean, again, you know, in this, um, you know, in their in, in their FAQ, it says, is there any end-to-end security between my handset and, for example, PayPal.com or my bank? <laughs> okay, first word, no. Shoo. It says, first, no. First word, if, buy. <laughs> it says, if you need full end-to-end encryption, you should use a full web browser such as Opera Mobile. Opera Mini uses a transcoder server, as they call it, to translate HTML, CSS, JavaScript into a more compact format. It will also shrink any images to fit the screen of your handset. This translation step makes Opera Mini fast, small, and also very cheap to use. To be able to do this translation, the Opera Mini server needs to have access to the unencrypted version of the web page. Therefore, no end-to-end encryption between the client and the remote web server is possible. You know, I understand why they're doing that, but they really should say that should be very clear on the front page. Yep. Um Wow, I haven't used it much, so I feel all right. But uh, you know, boy. I mean, you know, f- for what it's worth, I mean, they, they say, you know, another another of their made-up questions: Can Opera Software, Opera Software Company, see my passwords and credit card numbers in clear text? What is the encryption good for then? The answer: The encryption is introduced to protect the communication from any third party between the client, the browser on your handset, and the Opera Mini transcoder server. Meaning that so so they're talking about the encryption between. Your handset and their and Opera's server. Right. If you do not trust Opera software, make sure. Well, I, I'll say, and everyone who works for Opera software, yeah, make sure you do not use our application to enter any kind of sensitive information. Wow. It's like okay, <laughs> as you said, Leo. Bye bye. I deleted it. Ron Bailey in Dallas, Texas, has got to have his options outlined. Steve, at Epson, episode 123 of Security Now, during the Jungle Disk discussion, you mentioned that you keep everything in outlines. I'm an avid outliner, too, and I'm always on the lookout for new, better ways to work these things. How do you manage your outlines? Do you use software? Is it in text? I gots to know, says Ron. Well, I ever since, what was the very, was the very first one? Think, um, think Tank, I think. Think Tank, yeah. I'm sure you remember that, Leo. Oh, yeah, great program. Uh, th- uh, I think it was on the Apple II, yep. and it's it survived a while. It got ported to the PC. I think that was Dave Weiner's uh, original company. Yeah, I believe that that's exactly right. Yeah. And then there was some that was someone named John Friend. He did one called Grandview, and Symantec bought them at, right. at, at one point. Grandview was another great, and th- these were text-based outliners. That is to say, they ran you know back in you know on DOS, on, you know in the DOS era, and I actually still have Grandview here, and it works, although it's a little funky, and I've pretty much moved over into GUI land. Then there was something really wacky for a while called Echo, E-C-C-O. Oh, I remember Echo, yeah. Yeah, which was, I don't think anybody except the authors knew how that program worked. It was really 
free form. Oh, it we was say. so powerful <laughs> that you just say, okay, yeah. I guess I'm much more stupid than I thought I was. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was intimidating, but, uh, but it had a real, some really neat sh- group wear features well before I think that term mm-hmm. was even coined. Mm-hmm. Anyway, today I'm using something called thought manager desktop hmm. thought manager began on the palm. It was a palm app really? and, and, and it's, it's, I do use it there, although I, I, it's, you know, it's just, you know, I find that, that my palm is much more useful for reference, for like reading from than trying to type into. And of course, that's the advantage of the palm is mostly like if you have your contacts, your, your contact book there, you, you just give it a few keystrokes and it finds what you're looking for. So it's, it's used more as a reference device. But they did Thought Manager Desktop in order to create a Windows-based companion, much like the Palm desktop, where you're able to synchronize you, the, your contacts and your, the data uh, in your Palm. Yeah. And, and this works. Although Thought Manager desktop is so good, I just use it standalone. And every eh, maybe year or so, I go out and I look around all the outliners that are available. And in fact, outlining is so popular, there are sites that are just about outlining that like, you know, and I, I always find the same site when I Google, you know, windows based outlining or, or outlining or something. And, and there are different ways for outliners to work. Some of them have two panes. Some of them have three panes. Anyway, what, what ends up happening is I always am reminded how glad I am about thought manager desktop. So I would encourage people who are interested in outlining. I mean, I'm literally, I'm literally sitting here, Leo, looking at an outline for Security Now 126, and I have outlines going all the way back to number one. You're kidding! Wow. No, no I mean, and 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 I, I have uh, uh, an outline on an anti-spam email, article ideas, uh, you know, Bam Bam work. Uh, wow. I mean, literally, I, I have I, I have 43 outlines. That I, that I'm, this is the way I run my life. Now, it, just, is it, it sounds like you use it as a list manager more than anything else. I guess I do, except that I've got indentation. And so, like, I've got an errata line and then okay. weekly security right. update and then Q&A. And then underneath those are the sub, you know, sub-subjects. And underneath them are little things I, I don't want to forget to mention. And, and, and I'll tell you, for example, when I'm brainstorming a new product you know i've I, I think i've talked about crypto link is the next thing i'm going to do a, a cryptographic communications product i've got outline i mean everything about crypto link is in a thought manager outline because as i think of things i just put it in and i just i just want to know that i'm not going to forget it it'll be there i've captured it and and then I literally use the well, the thing that's cool about computer outlining is you can move things around. You use the alt key and and the arrows to like grab whole chunks and all their subsidiaries and like move them around to somewhere else. So you're able to take, you know, just random brainstorming stuff and as, as you begin to see, oh wait, this is like this and that's kind of like that. Well, well, we'll put them together and we'll give them a a heading. And so, I mean, it's, I just, I'm a, well, and the, of course, the ability to, to open and collapse the, the levels of outline that are being shown. So you're able to easily see an overview and then go, okay, now, now what's under this? And then, so you click it to open it very much like a, sort of like a windows folder tree. Uh, anyway, I'm just, it's just a spectacularly useful way 
of or something useful for a PC to do, you know, much like um, word processing and database and spreadsheets. I know outlining is is an application that's always been, you know, near the top of my list of things I'm glad someone figured out they could do on a computer. Wow. I'm so impressed. I thought <laughs> I knew everything about you. I, I haven't seen these little lists that you have all around you. Next time we're together in Vancouver, I'll show them. I, I mean, I carry them with me. And in fact, that's what I'm using through Jungle Disk because, oh. because and so I've got my entire out, my whole outline folder up on Amazon accessible from any machine where I happen to be using Jungle Disk to make the connection to Amazon in the sky. Now that's a good idea. Yeah. So you always have it available. Right. Well, Steve, we have done 12. We've wrapped them up. It's been a long episode. We had a lot of catching up to do, some big security news. And I think uh, you've earned yourself a break for the week. <laughs> well, we'll be back uh, with another episode next Thursday. next Thursday. On time. Although we have a little, you know, it's got Macworld Expo is up. We're up against the clock on that one. So uh, we'll have to figure out how to do that. I might have to do that earlier in the morning with you. We'll figure it we out. All, we always figure it out, Leo. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you're feeling better. And uh, I told Elaine not to worry about the timing of the transcript. I imagine we'll put this up I'll as put soon it up as right you away. And, guys uh, are able to do yeah, it. And then yeah. so the transcripts will follow, you know, whenever Elaine is able to, to catch up with Excellent. us. That's where you go for the transcripts. GRC.com. That's Steve's site. Uh, GRC.com slash security now has show notes. As he said, he'll have links there to all the stuff we've mentioned. I also will have the links in the RSS feed for the show and on the website and uh you can also go to GRC.com for 16 kilobit versions if you want the small little versions of the file. And uh, the transcripts, when Elaine gets around to this one, she'll have that one up. But all 125 episodes are up there already. And of course, go there for GRC's fabulous, Steve's fabulous Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. S-P-I-N-R-I-T-E at GRC.com. Steve, have a great week. Good to talk Thank to you. Thank you so much, Leo. It's great to talk to you again. Welcome back from your vacation. Thank you. And we'll, uh, we'll kick off next week's episode as we're going to from now on with any important security events since we last talked to our listeners. Excellent news. Thanks, Steve. Take care. Security Now.